Jesus said in John 5:39, search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life, but these, referring to the Old Testament, these, they did not have Bibles as we have them today in the sense of the full canon of scripture. Their scriptures, their Bibles were effectively the Old Testament. Do you know that there are 300 some prophecies concerning Jesus Christ in the Bible that point to Him, to His coming, to His life. I mean, we have already studied theophanies in the Old Testament, appearances of the pre-incarnate Christ appearing in the form of an angel or a man in the Old Testament. We have already talked about types last time. We could have gone on really for a long time with types. And I struggled with whether or not to continue with that this time or just keep going on types. There is again the tension of being enough and not getting so into it that, you know, it starts to drive you crazy. So that's the struggle I face as a teacher. This time we're going to talk about prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament. Ever since I read Luke 24, 27, where Jesus has risen from the dead, and as you know, he appears to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and as he walks along with them, ever since I read about that in Luke 24, 27, where it says, in beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures things concerning himself. Now, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. So, beginning at Moses would simply mean he began at the beginning. And he went all the way through, revealing to them, opening their eyes to the fact that he was everywhere in the Old Testament. The goal of this series is to see to what degree he is everywhere in the Old Testament. And we have already, I think, seen in a wonderful new way where he has appeared, all of these things that speak of him and the types... And I think as we go on in the prophecies, we're going to continue to be blessed. And my goal in this series, the bottom line is this, that you would never read the Old Testament the same again. But that from now on, the Old Testament would have a warmer feeling to it. That you wouldn't just see it as a bunch of wars with the people of Israel. A lot of strange things going on and different prophecies that you can't understand. I mean, it's very easy as a Christian to have that view of the Old Testament. Other than, you know, maybe you turn and point each day in Psalms somewhere and read some nice warm section of the Psalms and maybe you go for advice to Proverbs regularly to get a little wisdom. But other than that, you can have that kind of a view of the Old Testament. It's true and you know it. It's my desire in this series to change that view, to warm it up personally to our hearts as we see our Christ in the Old Testament. So this time we're going to talk about prophecies of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Someone has written these words and they really speak to me. The apostles appealed to this miracle of prophecy when proclaiming that God had prepared the world for the advent of Jesus Christ. Because to him all the prophets gave witness foretelling in many ways not only the coming, but also its manner and time and object, until not a fact about him 
which had relations to that object was without its corresponding prophecy. But if the life of Christ in all its singular fullness of event and purpose and results was really written beforehand in the Hebrew Scriptures, then the conclusions as to the truth of the gospel are too clear to be withstood by the mind of this or any other age. For his was not a life which could have been thought of by human invention. Those are good words. What the writer of those words is saying is this. The prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament are so numerous and so exact that there's no way you could honestly study them and come away and say, I don't believe in Jesus Christ. I don't believe He exists. I don't believe He was from God. I don't believe He was God. I don't believe He died for my sins. There's absolutely no way you could ever say that as a rational human being once you've studied Christ in the Old Testament. So what it comes down to in the end, if you really approach the Bible properly and honestly, is you will be convinced by the facts. And what it comes down to in the end is simply this. Do you want to turn from your sins and follow Christ or not? And that becomes the issue. Do you love your sin more than God? Do you love it enough to perish and spend forever in hell? Or are you willing to let go of it because of the overwhelming evidence and turn to the only Christ who can save you and wants to save you and rescue you from your sins? In the end, it becomes a testimony of the love of God, which you must either accept or reject. So the prophecies of Christ. Let's begin in the Old Testament by talking about the lineage of Christ. What we have in the Old Testament, and you can go right back to the beginning, if you like, to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And there are so many prophecies concerning this, we can look at a few and name many. But what we have in the lineage of Christ, or the genealogy, however you want to put it, is a well-defined line of prediction. It all starts with Adam and Eve right back in the beginning. And it continues as you move through the Bible with an ever-narrowing focus, but with an ever-broadening revelation. You follow that line of thought? In other words, the farther you go and the more revelation you have concerning the lineage of Christ in terms of prophecy, the more it narrows down the odds of some individual just coming along and randomly fulfilling these predictions. So it gets narrower and narrower and narrower and more and more specific and clearer and clearer and clearer all at the same time with the odds going up and up and up and up and up until they become absolutely impossible to humanly fulfill. So it is a well-defined line of prediction as we look at the lineage of Christ and prophecy in the Old Testament. In Genesis 3, in verse 15, you know the story, Adam and Eve fell into sin at the prompting of Satan, and they had to face God, and they're, you know, passing the buck about who did it and why. Adam blames it on Eve, of course. Man does that. That's the way men are in marriage. They blame a lot of things on their wives. I was at a men's conference, and one of the men said, you know, it's funny about men. There's something you can always know about men, two very important things about men that are always very sure, and you can rely on this. 
that half of what men say are lies and the other half are exaggerations. I like that. I thought that was a good statement to make at a men's conference. You wives are going, yay and amen. <laughs> of course, you know that's not true, but it sounded cool to say at a men's conference. So here's Adam. He won't take responsibility, and God comes to him. He says, not my fault. It's that woman you gave me. You gave me. Oh, now where are we putting the blame, Adam? And Eve, of course, blames the devil. Here is this whole thing. Finally, God is beginning to deal with them, and he addresses Satan, finally, in the thing. And in verse 15 of Genesis, he gives this word to Satan. And it is a direct prophecy about Jesus Christ dying for our sin, effectively reversing the curse that Satan brought, and judgment coming on Satan. So that you read, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. My Bible has that capital S. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Now as vague as that might be in terms of where we are in the Bible and how much they would know in comparison to how much we know, it's still so comprehensive. In fact, many Christian commentators since the second century have called this protevangelum, a Latin word meaning the first preaching of the gospel. Others have put it this way. It's been described as the Bible in embryo. In other words, it's just about all there. The idea is, as you look at this, there is this unique allusion where it says, her seed. It is the first announcement, really, of the virgin birth. Because, you know, biologically, when you talk about conception, the seed is delivered to the woman by the man. But in the miraculous conception of the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the seed, we are told here, is the woman's. The result of her being overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus Christ then, as the seed of the woman... Ultimately, the prophecy says, will defeat Satan. Satan would bruise his heel, certainly a reference to the crucifixion, but Jesus would bruise his head, speaking of delivering the fatal blow to the devil who had lured man into sin. So here is this wonderful prophecy right in the beginning, and it just flows on down from here. The Bible begins to unfold the lineage down through which this would come. It all begins with the seed of the woman. From there, it flows from Seth. You know, you have the problem with Cain and Abel, and Cain kills righteous Abel. So certainly, the lineage isn't going to come down through Cain. So God gives Adam and Eve another son, and it's Seth. And down through the lineage comes Seth. And from him it goes on down so that the prophecy begins to move on down through their offspring. And it goes down through Noah and down through Abraham as you skip across the pages of the Bible and all the workings and words of the Lord there. But let's talk about Abraham for a minute. Could you turn in your Bible to Genesis 12? Genesis 12 to verse 1. Do you realize that never in the history of the world 
has there been a man where his entire life is foretold in advance in detail like this? Never. It's never happened. Jesus Christ is so different than every other man that has ever lived. And as we read through this, it just amazes me to realize, you know, before I became a Christian, I was really into, quote, prophecy. You know what I mean by that? I read Gene Dixon's books. I was fascinated when I read about how she got her power from none other than a serpent. So obviously her power, whatever, you know, she's always wrong, but whatever power she does have came from the devil. I think I read every single one of Edgar Cayce's books. Do you know who Edgar Cayce is? He's called the sleeping prophet. Type of guy he could go to sleep and lay on a book with his head on a book and he could wake up with all the knowledge of what was in the book. Just an amazing guy. I believe now he had demons. I, I read everything in print from Edgar Cayce. I was fascinated with this whole thing. The writings of Nostradamus. I mean, we could go on and on, but I was fascinated with it. One of the things that concerned me, however, was that these people were often wrong. Coming to the Bible as a Christian, you can't imagine my elation to find out that there's such a thing as prophecy that happens among men, and it's real, and it's accurate, and it's from God, and he's never wrong. He's never been wrong once on even one little tiny detail. So we come to Abraham. Genesis 12:1. it says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And now the prophecy begins to flow. I will make you a great nation. And now the unfolding of the lineage is coming out. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. Here's the protection of the lineage. And in you, all families of the earth will be blessed. Now exactly what is meant by that? It's a reference to the Messiah coming through him. The Savior of the world, and thus all the families of the world will be blessed. Look at verse 7. It says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram, and he said, to your descendants, I will give this land. Now, descendants is an okay translation. But if you look at the old King James, I'm reading from the new, it says descendants. I think NIV says offspring, right? I just want to see who had NIV. But uh, how could you read NIV when your pastor's in New King James? Now, that's just got to be sinful. I'm just kidding. But NIV says offspring. That's actually better than descendants. Old King James, which now to us in these days is often confusing because of the archaic language, it says seed. It's right on target. The Hebrew there is literally seed. And that is important. It's critical. Because in Galatians 3.16, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read it to you. Paul is writing and he's reaching back to basically grab that prophecy, interpret it, and apply it to Jesus Christ. And he says, Now to Abraham and his seed, capital S, were the promises made. Then Paul, 
showing that he believes even words, the very words of the Old Testament scriptures, every one of them were inspired. He says, he does not say to seeds as of many, but as of one and to your seed, he says, who is Christ. So Paul is very clear that what we have just read in Genesis 12, 7, is a prophecy of Jesus Christ coming down through the lineage, the line of Abraham and his descendants. As you move on in the Old Testament, you see the revelation continue to unfold. You find that the lineage continues through Isaac and Jacob and Judah and Boaz and Obed and Jesse and David. If you move from there and you go over to the New Testament and you open up the book of Matthew, you find immediately a genealogy there. And that is Matthew's genealogy, basically dealing with Joseph. And it fills in a lot of the gaps that you have left in the Old Testament. If you go to the book of Luke and read the genealogy in chapter 3, you have, in fact, Mary's genealogy, tracing the bloodline of the Messiah back to the promise made to David that Christ would be his literal blood descendant. And the reason Matthew traces back the genealogy of Joseph is because Joseph is the literal legal heir of David to the throne, which God had made him the promise that his descendants would sit upon the throne. However, there was a wicked king in the middle of the whole plan as it unfolded that God made a promise to none of your descendants by blood will sit upon the throne of David. Now you get to Joseph. His son has to be the rightful heir to the throne. He has to. But if he has a son that is his blood offspring because of the curse, I think it's made to Jeconiah, but... Um, if you look at that curse, if Joseph was to have Jesus as his blood son, then because of the curse, he would not be allowed to sit upon the throne of David because of that curse made to the king. But you see, God foresaw that. So by adopting Joseph, adopting Jesus... He now, by adoptive legal rights, has the legal right to the throne of King David, which has come down through Joseph and his line, legally. They've bypassed the bloodline curse. And if you go up through the genealogy of Mary, it goes all the way back to Nathan, David's son. So there is a direct connection by blood back to David, so that God's promise to David that your bloodline will sit on the throne and your lineage down will be king, both prophecies are fulfilled in spite of the fact God had to be holy and deal fairly with this wicked king in the middle. And that was just an attempt of the devil to mess the whole thing up. So it becomes a fascinating study, that in and of itself, in the fulfillment of prophecy. And we get that from the genealogies that fill in some of the gaps in Matthew and Luke. Now, if you move from the first prophecy in Genesis, which is fairly obscure but yet comprehensive, you receive more and more specifics as you go along. And as I said, the odds of a natural human being fulfilling that. Let's just say a guy came along and said, Oh, 
oh, I see these prophecies. I'm going to live my life in such a way as to fulfill them. The odds go up and up and up and up until they're impossible. Now, I told you there's 300 prophecies of Christ in the Bible. Now, let's just talk about if we had eight of them. Suppose we were only dealing with Jesus Christ fulfilling eight prophecies. What do you think the odds would be of Jesus fulfilling eight prophecies from the Old Testament? Let's just say he read them, discovered them, and decided, I'm going to fulfill them. What do you think the odds would be of him being able to pull it off? Well, there was a professor who worked on this years ago. And he came up, his name was Peter W. Stoner, and he came up with the odds. He worked it all out mathematically. And he says this, We find that the chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled eight prophecies is this, one in ten to the seventeenth power. Now you mathematicians, for most of you that means absolutely nothing. It means ten with a little seventeen next to it. But for you mathematicians, we're not talking millions here. We're not talking billions here. We're not talking trillions here. And I'm not even sure what comes after that because that's as far as I go. What is it? Quadrillion. Okay, thank you. We have a calculus man out here. Quadrillion. We're talking 10 to the 17th power gets you up into the quadrillions. So it's, it's an amazing figure of odds. Now to make it mean something to you, let's put it this way. If you took that many silver dollars and spread them around the state of Texas, 10 to the 17th power, which would be up in the quadrillions, and you spread them around the state of Texas, they would cover the state of Texas and they would be two feet deep. Okay? Is it becoming clear to you now? Okay, Texas is a big place. Now, cover all the state two feet deep with silver dollars and then take one silver dollar and mark it. Let's just say you spray paint it red and mark it. Now take it and just throw it out into the middle of the state. And just to make it really fair, to conform to the odds, stir up all the silver dollars all over the whole state. Take a giant egg beater thing and boom, 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 boom. Stir them all up just to make it fair. Now, take a man and blindfold him and just send him out there. Maybe turn him around a few times. Make him, you know, send him out there. And tell him he can go as far as he wants to in any direction across the state of Texas. And that here's the deal. That he must pick up one silver dollar and he must hold it up in the air and say, this is the one with the mark on it. Now the odds of a man doing that are 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Just the same chance is that that the prophets would have had of writing eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their day down to the time of Jesus, provided they wrote them in their own wisdom. So now these prophecies are either given by inspiration of God or the prophets just wrote them down as they thought they should be. In such a case, that's what the prophets had, just one chance in 10 to the 17th power of being right. So the idea, the odds of Jesus fulfilling only eight prophecies, only eight, and yet he fulfilled 300. The idea of that is absolutely staggering. 
And yet it's wonderful to contemplate. So coming down through the lineage of Christ by prophecy. Now let's go on and talk about the birth of Christ by prophecy and, and the general time period of Jesus appearing as the Messiah. As you look at the Old Testament, the prophecies of the birth of Jesus are really among the easier to understand. And then as you get into the time in which he would appear, they are very accurate and detailed. And with some work, they're harder to understand, but with some work you could have figured them out. Let me show you what I mean. Turn in your Bible to Micah. Or maybe you shouldn't turn to Micah. We need to keep moving. Let me put it this way. If you know where Micah is, turn there right now. If you don't, just look up at me. And I'll read Micah to you. In Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. This amazing, accurate, crystal clear prophecy. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. Now there were two Bethlehems at the time of Jesus. You maybe you didn't know that. There are two Bethlehems at the time of Jesus. One was in the area of Zebulun. Because this Bethlehem is in Judah, originally they had even called it Ephrathah. God is very specific here because He wants to know that He's not just saying one of those Bethlehems. He is saying specifically the exact Bethlehem which would be in Judah. Though you are little among, notice, the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one who is to be ruler in Israel. That's the Messiah. But notice the deity of this man whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. So here's the place he'll be born. Here's the city. Here's the fact he will be a man, a human being. Here's the fact he will be king, ruler of Israel. And here's the fact that he will also be God, who's been around from everlasting. That is so clear. It's just so easy to understand. So easy to understand that those of you that have seen different movies about Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, or whatever, some of the other movies, you remember where the Magi come in, or especially those that have read your Bible, the Magi, the wise men, come in. And they come and they ask of Herod where the Messiah is to be born. And as soon as they ask that question, they get an immediate answer. And it comes from none other than the scribes and the Pharisees. And they say immediately, they know exactly, oh, he's going to be born in Bethlehem because it says so in Micah. It's curious that they didn't care, but that they knew. Here are these guys that come from the east. Some uh, scholars speculate there could have been a troop of a thousand people coming unlike what you see on Christmas cards and in the movies, just three of them. But nowhere in the Bible does it say there were three. There's this gigantic company coming. And they're following this miracle star in the sky. And they come to the keepers, the custodians of God's Word, and they say, where is the Messiah to be born? Oh, down in Bethlehem. Go ahead and see. Not even interested. And the funny thing is, they go down and they find Him. God has His way of being able to guide anybody to His... Savior's son that really wants him and wants forgiveness. 
And so it's very clear in Micah the place of his birth. And then the manner of his birth is equally clear. In Isaiah 7.14, can you turn to Isaiah? I want you to look at these scriptures so that they stay impressed upon your mind and heart in the future. Isaiah 7.14. Remember how I said it starts in the beginning with Adam and Eve and it gets clearer and clearer and more specific as you go? There's that hint of the virgin birth in the garden. And now it gets crystal clear. I mean, God just comes right out and says it. Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. And that is to say this is something miraculous. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name is Emmanuel. And we are told that means God with us. Virgin birth, the God-man. There's no mistaking what is being said here. It's just so clear. You know, there's some amazing births that have taken place in our time with modern technology. I was poking around and found something that John MacArthur wrote in his book, The Miracle of Christmas, in 1989. And he recorded some of these amazing things. In July of 1978, for example, a little girl named Louise Brown was born in England at 5 pounds 12 ounces. Louise was a tiny baby, but what made her birth truly extraordinary was that she was conceived outside of the human body. Little Louise Brown was the first test tube baby. Since then, many other children have been conceived in vitro fertilization. It is amazing, unthinkable even a few years ago, but not miraculous. Conception occurs by a male seed fertilizing a female egg. Birth then occurs normally. The only difference that we're talking about here is the place of conception. Scientists are experimenting with other amazing techniques to enable conception and birth by other than natural means. For years they've been ex experimenting with this. And they've come up with a, a way of birth that they call parthenogenesis. The name comes from two Greek words, parthenos meaning virgin and genesis meaning beginning or birth. Literally then, parthenogenesis is the science of virgin birth. Laboratory experiments have revealed that in some cases, parthenogenic life can be generated in some animals. Among honeybees, for example, unfertilized eggs develop naturally into drones. Artificial parthenogenesis has been used to produce silkworms since 1888. Many forms of invertebrates and plants may be reproduced by parthenogenesis in laboratory experiments, but parthenogenesis can reproduce only genetically identical species. Frog eggs, for example, might be stimulated to develop by parthenogenesis into living frogs, but all of them will be female. Frogs genetically identical to the mother who laid the eggs. Also, parthenogenesis, cloning, and other experimental forms of reproduction have all proved impossible on the human level. Even in the face of modern science, Christ's conception remains absolutely unique. Science can never explain how a virgin, a woman who never had an intimate relationship with a man, 
could give birth to a male child. It was a miracle of God, the greatest miracle of conception the world has ever known. And the great thing about it, end quote, the great thing about it is that God foretold it so long before it happened in exact terms in the book of Isaiah. So we see prophecy in the place of his birth. We see prophecy in the manner of his birth. But we also see prophecy that relates to the time of his birth. Turn in your Bible, could you, to Genesis 49. Genesis 49. I'm beginning to really understand what Jesus meant when he said, Search the scriptures, they testify of me. How could you miss me? I'm beginning to really understand that. And as we move into what we're going to talk about next, you're going to understand even more of what he meant. He was literally saying, if you had searched the scriptures properly, there would be no question in your mind right this moment who I am. You couldn't possibly mistake who I am right at this moment. Watch how this unfolds. In Genesis 49.10, here is the old patriarch prophesying. And he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. You know what's interesting? I read over that scripture for years, and I knew in my heart it was talking about the Messiah. But the thing about the scepter not departing from Judah, I could not make heads or tails of that. You know why? There was a history gap and a culture gap that I needed to close in my Bible reading. And as long as that remained as it was, I couldn't understand it. And then this part about the lawgiver from between his feet, I could not understand what that was all about. But once I closed those gaps, I began to see this is an amazing prophecy foretelling the time, the exact time, when Jesus Christ the Messiah would appear as the Savior of the world. You see, the prophecy here is that from Judah... Notice he says the scepter will not depart from Judah. The prophecy is that from Judah, the Messiah would come. Judah is one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and it became a geographical place. And in that place is Bethlehem and Jerusalem and all of that. So, from Judah, the Messiah was to come. And the tribe of Judah would be the ruling body of Israel until the Messiah came. So it's interesting to see how that unfolds. You read, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. That's talking about the power to rule. The power to rule being in Judah. The power to rule their own people, Israel. The power to make laws, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. The power to make their own laws. To um, apply the laws that God had given them in the Old Testament. That's what this is all about. Now, if you go forward in time, a long way from Genesis, to the time of Jesus, it's interesting that as you pass from B.C. into A.D., about the year 6 A.D., an interesting thing happened. Everything goes along normal. Judah has the power, the ruling power, power to make and carry out all the laws God gave them. Among the laws that God gave them, 
One of the most important set of laws you find in Leviticus, it was in our daily reading recently, one of the most important set of laws is that of capital punishment. In order to restrain a large group of millions of people, many of whom did not know God, God had to put in severe laws to put a cap on evil and restrain it so that they wouldn't become as evil as the people in the land that they drove out, the Canaan land, as they took the land. That's why he gave capital punishment. And as you go down the list of the sins he gave capital punishment for, you find it's everything that's on the sitcoms on TV today. Just, that is to me horrifying. The people can waltz around on a sitcom and joke and laugh, whether it's canned laughter, you know, or real laughter from a live audience, to see them joke about the things in the list that were given the death penalty. Is a, it's a shocking thing. And it tells you how close we are to the coming of Jesus Christ and God's judgment on the earth. But what I'm saying is those laws were critical. So... When the time comes that they can no longer carry out with their own power the death penalty, they've lost much of their power and they're moving toward losing it all. And that's exactly how it unfolded. In the year A.D. 6, 6 A.D., the Roman government took from the nation of Israel officially the right to exercise capital punishment, the death penalty. They took it away from them. So that when that happens, when that happened, it was the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophecy in Genesis that we just read. You're hitting the point in time now where that power is being taken away. That means the time of the Messiah is at hand. So that in the Gospel of John, let me just read it to you for the sake of time. In chapter 18, verse 31 Pilate said to them, Jesus is before him. Pilate said to them, you take him. You judge him according to your law. And the response is critical. Therefore, the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Hey, that's not from God's law. That was God's law. But that power had been taken from them, you see, by the Roman government. It's there. There's evidence of it right there. About 6 A.D., that power was taken from them. In fulfillment of, in part, of the Scripture and the prophecy back in Genesis. It's signifying they wanted the death penalty for Jesus, but they no longer had the power to carry it out. Now, do you realize, this happened in history, do you realize that when the Romans took away that power from the people, that the people of Israel went through the streets with sackcloth and ashes on them, mourning. Do you know why they were mourning? Because they were looking back to Genesis 49, where God had prophesied that He would not allow the power to be taken from them until He sent His Messiah. When they saw the power of the death penalty taken from them and they didn't see their Messiah, they began to mourn many of them and go through the streets just crying out because they felt that God had now not been true to His most important promise to them as a people. Little did they know that just down the way in a little town, a nowhere town called Nazareth, there was a young lad 
growing up who was in fact already on the scene and was in fact the Messiah and was there right on time as the power was taken from them to work and to give their own laws. Now, from there, here's what happens. It goes on, the prophecy goes on in Genesis 49.10 to say, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. That's speaking of a time coming when the power to rule themselves would be completely stripped away. Not just taking the power of the death penalty from them. That was the beginning. But that it would go on to be completely stripped away from them. What happened is this. They lost the power of the death penalty in 6 A.D., In 70 A.D., Titus Vespasian, the Roman general, came down with his legions and he surrounded Jerusalem. And he assaulted it and he was having trouble taking it. So what he did, he was to be emperor of Rome, but what he did is that he began to starve them out. And what unfolded from there, Josephus the historian records this for us in detail. It became one of the grimiest, saddest, most tragic events on the pages of history. People crowded into Jerusalem from the countryside as they saw him coming. And then what happened is he surrounded the city and he began to starve them out. And they got to the point in this terrible siege, it's recorded in the fifth book of the Wars of the Jews in Josephus' writings. He tells us that 97,000 Jews were taken captive and that when it was all over, 1,100,000 had perished by either slow starvation or the sword. And many of them had been lined up outside the walls of the city and crucified. When it was all over, you know the story, Titus went in and he literally leveled the temple and tore it down brick by brick, melted it down to get the gold that was there out of it. When it was all done, he had destroyed Jerusalem. And he took the power, the scepter, the power to rule themselves completely away from them, and it was ripped out of their hands literally for centuries to come. And it's only now in these days, 1948, When Israel became a nation again, I might add according to prophecy, that they got the power back to rule themselves in any way. So in 70 AD, to the detail, the power of the scepter was taken from Judah. But here's the important thing. The Messiah had already come. The Messiah had already come. The promise was this. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And God fulfilled that word of prophecy in detail. Now, here's how it works out. If you look at this, and Jewish people really need to consider this. In 70 AD, the scepter was taken. There was no longer a lawgiver, which means the Messiah had to come sometime before 70 AD. Or indeed, the word of God did fail. If Jesus, if the word of God did fail, or if... Jesus is not the promised Messiah, then folks, there is no Messiah. And God's word has failed. According to God's word, he had to come at that time period. If he didn't come at that time period, there is no Messiah and God is a liar. If you are a Jewish person and you don't believe in Christ and you're waiting for the Messiah, 
Another Messiah other than Christ, he's never going to come. Because he either had to come then according to God's word in Genesis or he is not coming. That becomes absolutely critical to who the one is that's going to save you. So, the word of God plainly declares the time of the Messiah's coming. Now, it gets even more specific. And the more specific, in my mind, the more thrilling. Could you turn in your Bible to Daniel, the book of Daniel, to chapter 9. Look at verse 25 and 26 with me. You know, the amazing thing about the prophecies is not only that there's so many and that they're all so accurate, but that they all link together. They all critically link together. They're all interlocked. Daniel 9.25. Here God gives Daniel this prophecy. He wants him to write it down. He wants it to be studied by his people. And that is why Jesus said, You search the scriptures, you should have known. He says, Know therefore and understand. Know and understand. In other words, before we go any farther, this is understandable. This is understandable. There's some things in Daniel that refer to uh, the second coming of Christ, the great tribulation. These things were very difficult for Daniel to look into and to understand. Some of them he couldn't. There was no way. But this is understandable to Daniel and to those that would read it. He says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and to build Jerusalem until, very clear terms, Messiah, the prince comes, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after... The 62 weeks, which would mean that the seven weeks had already passed, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off, speaking of his death, but not for himself, speaking of his atonement, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's a reference to the Roman Empire, and it's out of a revived Roman Empire that the prince to come, who is the Antichrist, will come and rule the earth for a season in the tribulation period. It's a, it's a short-term, long-term, far-reaching, all-encompassing prophecy of all of that. The people of the prince who is to come, that's the Romans who came with Titus Vespasian, later in a revived version of the Roman Empire, which may well be the European economic community, comes the Antichrist. But let me draw your attention to what we're talking about. God told Daniel from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. That's a reference to Artaxerxes, King Artaxerxes. You can turn in your Encyclopedia Britannica and you can find when Artaxerxes began his reign. That's not mysterious for us. And it wasn't for them. God told Daniel from the time Artaxerxes gave the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now we're talking Nehemiah. That it would be exactly 483 years and then exactly 483 years and then the Messiah would come in other words if you just can accurately mark when Artaxerxes gave that command and they began to restore and rebuild Jerusalem start there go out 483 years and to the day you'll have the time when the Messiah is coming to 
to reveal himself. Boy, that's pretty succinct. Now, you say, where do you get 483 years out of that? Even the NIV doesn't have that. 483 years unfold easily in two phases. If you look at these phases, we have them on your chart. This is why I gave you your chart now. I didn't want to rattle off a bunch of years and numbers and have it go over your head and have you leave and go, well, I liked everything except that that 70-week thing and the 69 weeks and the... And all of that, I just can't figure that out. I want you to leave understanding it. So you get a chart, right? You can understand it. The 70 weeks starts in verse 24 of Daniel 9, and I don't want to focus on that part of it. It's here in the chart. But I want to focus on the time that deals with the Messiah in the context we're looking at it. How do you get 483 years out of this? Well, you notice that... It begins with a 49-year period. Look at your text. Don't look at your chart at the moment. Look at your text. Daniel 9.25. He says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be, notice, seven weeks. Then it says, And on top of that, 62 weeks. Now, what you have with these seven weeks is weeks of years, weeks of years, so that seven weeks here literally turns out to be 49 years, 49 years. You see it there on your chart? You have the decree of Artaxerxes to Nehemiah. Here's the date, March 14th, 445 B.C. That's the beginning. That's where the clock starts ticking. That's where you begin to count. Then there are seven weeks, see it? 49 years to complete the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So the seven weeks is 49 years. Each week being seven. So seven times seven is 49. 49 years. Now, that's phase one. When that is completed, you can add to that, the Lord says to Daniel, there shall be seven weeks and then 62 weeks. That's phase two. 62 weeks then becomes 434 years. It's on your chart. So that if you look at it and you had added this all up, the total would be 483 years from the time Artaxerxes gave his command and the freedom to Nehemiah to go and rebuild Jerusalem. Let's say God said to Daniel, listen, Take this down and understand it. If you had come along and studied this and just simply added this up, and it wouldn't be that hard because I'm sparing you all the details of why the seven-week thing, the week thing of years, would make sense to them. But if you had added it all up, you would have gone out from March 14th, 445 B.C. to the exact date of, and it's right here in your chart, the presentation of the Messiah as Prince, the exact date of April 6th, A.D. 32. So when God gives this prophecy to Daniel, he is saying, look, I've given already a lot of information, but now I'm going to get specific. I'm going to tell you how you can figure out the day your Messiah will come into Jerusalem and reveal himself to be the king. Very specific. 
So what happened is this. Jesus came into Jerusalem on April 6, A.D. 32, 483 years to the day. And I could have taken you through all of how this is figured out, but I know then you would have gone away not understanding. So I'm sparing you the details so you can grasp this. 483 years to the very day. If you had taken the prophecy, now let's walk back through this. If you had taken the prophecy from Micah 5.2 that said he'd be born in Bethlehem. If you had studied the prophecy of Genesis 49.10 and watched as they took away the death penalty and saw what was coming after that, that they would soon take all the power to rule. And then you had taken Daniel 9.25-26. You could have literally been waiting for the Messiah. So do you understand now why when Jesus says to the religious leaders who made it their life every day, every day, every day to study the Old Testament, when he says, you guys, you do search the scriptures, but they testify of me. And why don't you see it? Do you understand how heinous that was? It was the most fair indictment that could ever be given to those men. But there's even more. In the book of Zechariah, I want to add one more thing to this. In the book of Zechariah, I'll read this one to you. If you had known Zechariah 9.9, you could have not only known the exact day the Messiah would have come into Jerusalem to reveal himself, you would have known also that he would have specifically come in riding on a donkey's colt. It doesn't get any more specific than that. You see, Zechariah 9.9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, here's how it's going to happen. Your king is coming to you. He is just and he's coming with salvation. And he comes lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. He's going to come. He's bringing salvation. Don't look for some awesome political leader type, which is what the ones that didn't receive him were looking for. Look for somebody who's going to surprise you with his humility, who will come in a way that you, you wouldn't suspect. In fact, so humble, he's going to be riding on the colt of a donkey. And when you find that man, you will have your Messiah. That to me is so thrilling. Turn to John 12. John 12 in your Bible. And we can actually read how this unfolded. John 12. John 12, verse 12. And it says, The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees, and they went out to meet him, and they cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found, what? A young donkey, sitting on a donkey's colt. When he found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, and we just read where it was written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, Zechariah, Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And his disciples did not understand these things. Notice, at first, 
They weren't as acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures as they could have been and should have been. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. So here's what happened. If you ever thought to yourself, Jesus woke up one morning as you read through the Gospels. If you ever thought to yourself, he woke up one morning, went out and looked and said, Oh, it's a beautiful, clear day. You know what? It's a nice day to ride on over to Jerusalem. And you know, I'd like to ride on a young donkey. Go get me a donkey's colt, would you? Down there you can find one. I just want to kind of cruise into Jerusalem on a young donkey. Let's go on in. We'll do some shopping, guys, and look around. If you ever thought it was on a whim, you now know forever, once and for all, that this was all prearranged. He knew exactly what was going on. You know how, as you read through the Gospels, Jesus has a way of talking about his hour. For example, in John 2, 4, he says, Mine hour has not yet come. There was this hour, you see, an appointed time. Every time he said that, he knew what he was talking about. You see, God had told Daniel that the very day that the Messiah would come into the city of Jerusalem and be acknowledged as Messiah. Hosanna, the king, they were acknowledging that. He had told Zechariah that he would come in on a colt. So Jesus didn't ride into Jerusalem on a whim. He went in in fulfillment of prophecy as the Messiah. I want to take you to Luke and we'll end up there. Jesus validates this thought to us. Luke 19.41 If you've ever read about Jesus weeping over the city and wondered why, now you know why. Because God had told them everything they needed to know to be ready. And they weren't. And they rejected Him. So as he drew near the city, Luke 19:41, as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, notice, if you had known. God said to Daniel, write this down and understand it. If you had known, even you, especially in this, what does he say? Your day. He's talking about that day that had been pointed to. They could have counted the time to it. Your day. The things that make for your peace. Do you know that the word Shiloh means peace? All the way back early in Genesis, we read it. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the lawgiver from beneath his feet, until Shiloh comes. Shiloh means peace. Here he is. He said, you should have known this your day, and the day the things that make for your peace. Me, I'm Shiloh. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Why? Because you did not know, what does he say? The time. You did not know the time of your visitation. He is saying, you should have all been waiting for this very moment. You're missing the whole thing completely. And he's weeping over them. Do you understand now why? He had told them everything they needed to know to be ready so they could all be saved. So they could all have forgiveness. They could all receive their Messiah. They could all be saved and spend forever together as the people of God. And now they've rejected him and they are soon to kill him. Have you ever wondered why Simeon was hanging around the temple when they brought in the baby Jesus? You ever wondered why? How? How could this man be waiting in the temple for the baby Jesus? 
Luke 2.25 says, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Luke 2.25 And this man was just, and he was devout. Luke 2.25 This man was just, and he was devout. But that isn't all about him, we're told. We're told he was, what does it say? Waiting. He was waiting. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. That is an Old Testament phrase for the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Do you see the difference between those Jesus wept over? You should have known. You don't know. You're blind. You're going to be lost. But here's a man who knew and was waiting. And in response to his earnest searching of the scriptures, his devotion, the Spirit was there to help him. The Spirit is always there to help every earnest, devout believer to understand Scripture in a way that the don't know God could never understand Scripture. He's waiting, and the Holy Spirit is upon him. And further, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he had studied. He was waiting. The Spirit helped him to understand, and, and on top of all of that, As if to say, you know what? Because you're one of the few who has taken the time to search out and connect it all together. One of the few who is waiting. I'm going to tell you one further thing that you can't find in the book. I'm going to tell you this. You will personally see him yourself. And then you will die. But you will not die until you see him. So you wait and know that as you get older and older and more feeble and you think you're going to die and not see it, I'm telling you personally, you will see him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And then, you know the account, they come in and he is able to hold the baby, Jesus, the Son of God, God in flesh, in his own arms, and he rejoices and he praises God. Simeon is a picture of what every Israelite should have been and certainly what every one of those religious leaders should have been. And he is a picture of what they should have been communicating to everyone around so that the people who didn't have the everyday study of the Scripture like the leaders did could have been taught. He's a picture of what every person in Jerusalem and Israel should have been the day he rode into Jerusalem on that donkey. Isn't prophecy in the Old Testament amazing? It is so amazing. And we've only looked at the lineage of Christ and the birth of Christ. You realize we still have the person of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the glory of Christ. It's all there. But you see, if I had dumped all of that on you this time, you would have gone away and said, man, there's a lot of prophecies, and that'd be about it. But you see, now you could never read Daniel 9 again the same way. You can never read Genesis 49 again the same way. You can never read Micah 5.2 again the same way. You can never read Zechariah 9 the same way. You can never read the account in the garden in Genesis 3 the same way. You see, he's woven all the way through. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Lord, we're realizing as we grow and study more and more the treasure in your scriptures. And Jesus, as the delight and the passion of our life is to know you better. It is so marvelous to have our faith strengthened 
As we study the Old Testament scriptures and see them fulfilled in the new, see the prophecies given, not one line falling through the gaps, but every detail fulfilled. God, how we thank you that these scriptures are here to strengthen our faith and to bless us and to bring us further into our relationship with you. And Lord, we understand as we see the personal involvement, the promise to Simeon, the spirit upon him, how personal you want each one of us to be with you. So Lord, as we study the scriptures and as we wait upon you, we ask you to fill us with your Holy Spirit, to bless us and to give us those personal personal revelations that apply to our lives and lay a clear path before our feet. Led by the Spirit and your word, we can only grow and move further into blessedness with you. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.